Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Take your Bibles and go with me to Exodus chapter 24, the book of Exodus. In chapter 24 on Sunday evenings, we've been taking our time walking our way through the book of Exodus. Man, the the plan of how God provided freedom to his people and the wonderful lesson that is for how he provides freedom to you and to me today. And we are in Exodus chapter 24. And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word? Exodus chapter 24, we're going to read verse number one down to verse number 11. Exodus chapter 24. Verse number one, down to verse number 11. Now, this chapter actually records two events where Moses in particular, and then you'll see in verse number one, the group of men that are called up to go up into the mountain to see the Lord. Uh, Moses and this group of men who go up, and then there's actually a second calling. So Exodus chapter 24 is actually two scenes It's when Moses and the group of of, uh, 70 elders plus Aaron plus Aaron's son, so 74 people in total, they go up the mountain and they receive something from the Lord. And then they come down, they have some sort of interaction, there's some sort of time that passes, and then Moses is called to go up again. And then he, and he does so. That's verse number 12. Okay, so you'll notice, look at verse number one. And he said, that's the Lord. And he said unto Moses, come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship ye are far off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, and neither shall the people go up with him. Okay, so that's the first call up the mountain. They ascend up into the mountain, and then verse number 3 down to verse number 11 gives us the details of that first interaction on top of the mountain. We're going to unpack that first scene here this evening, but look at verse number 12. Verse number 12. So, Between verse 11 and verse 12, we aren't told specifically what happens, but we do see something implicit. Look at verse number 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, come up to to me in the mount and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone and the law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach him. And Moses rose up and his minister and Moses went up into the mountain and, and he said unto the elders. Okay, so remember the first, the first verse, he takes the elders up into the mountain with him. So, so this, is a, this is a second ascent into the mountain. This time he only takes Joshua. He says to the elders, you stay here, rule over the people. Look down at verse number 14. And he said to the elders, tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Ur are with you. And if any man have any matters to do, let them come unto him. Okay, so... I want to help you catch the scene of everything that's happening. So the first 
11 verses, Moses and the elders go up. They worship God because God tells them to. They come back down in verse number 11. Verse number 12, some time has passed between 11 and 12. God calls Moses alone with his minister Joshua, like quite literally his servant, his right-hand man, Joshua, come up to the mountain, but only you, and leave Aaron and her there with the 70 elders and you rule over. So this is everything you think of Moses in the mountain. Because right? some of you right now in your brain, you're going, where does chapter 24 fall with Moses comes down and he has the tables and he breaks them on the ground? Remember that whole story, right? Well, that's verse 12. Moses goes up the mountain, they worship the Lord. They come down. Moses is called to go up to the mountain again. He receives the tables of stone. Aaron and her stay at the bottom. They build the golden calf. Moses hears this noise as if it were war. And the Lord says, go down and see what the people are doing. This is why I want to start over. Moses comes down. He sees the golden, staff, golden calf. He breaks the tablets on the ground. He's angry. He's irate with the people. Then he goes back up into the mountain again. And then he gets the, the tablets again. Then he comes back down the mountain again. So this is, everything from here to the end is Moses going up the mountain, worshiping God, coming down. Going up the mountain, getting instruction from God, coming down. Going up the mountain, getting a second instruction from God. The instruction he receives in verse number, verse number 12. See that phrase, tables of stone? So, so the instruction he receives is the instruction that follows between chapter 25 and all the way to the end. So if you, if you know the end of Exodus, you know that the, the, really the, the majority, the back half of this text is the instruction for how they are to have temple worship. All the rules, all the guidance for what goes into the tabernacle, what goes into the temple, and how they're supposed to interact with all these elements and all these pieces of temple worship and tabernacle worship. Moses receives that instruction on tables of stone. So that's important to understand. Because if you're thinking he goes up in the mountain, he gets two nicely framed arch pieces of stone, just large enough for Charleston Heston to carry one in each hand. He comes down and then neatly scripted in Roman numeral font are the Ten Commandments listed and then he gives them to the people. Like if that's what you're thinking, you're wrong. So he goes up the mountain, and what does God write onto the tables of stone? He writes instruction. Tables of stone. There's two. There's multiple tables of stone. Why? One goes into the Ark of the Covenant. The other, it is used as a witness and a sign and a testimony to the children of Israel. You following me? That's everything that happens. So, so this, is, this, this interaction, this come up into the mountain, very important. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? All right, we'll unpack these first 11 verses. Don't worry, we won't get all of that tonight, but those 11 verses we'll get. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, I pray that you use your word this evening in our hearts and lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Sometimes understanding the scripture is, is easier than you think it is. Okay, so you need to know that as a Bible student. Sometimes understanding the scripture is easier than you think it is. So, so an immediate question that jumps off of these pages for us is this. 
Why is Moses going up the mountain? Why is Moses journeying up the mountain? And not only is, not only is it why he's going up the mountain, but why, does he, why is he taking his brother? Why is he taking his brother's sons? Why is he taking the 70 elders? Why is he taking all of these people? These 70 elders are, are probably, uh, we would understand them perhaps as, as uh, governors or, or magistrates. These are probably the men that Moses appointed for positions of authority and leadership at the direction of Jethro, his father-in-law, who, who recommended to Moses, you, you can't listen to all of these people. You need someone helping you to administer the needs of the people that you're leading. Remember that, remember that lesson? And so Moses appoints out elders, governors, magistrates, right? And they rule and reign and they answer problems. And they, if, they can, if they know the answer, they give it back. If they don't know the answer, they bring it to Moses. So, so why do they go up the mountain? Why is God calling them up the mountain? It's one of the, one of the largest questions that jumps off the page. But look at verse number one. This is why I tell you, the as a Bible student, understanding the Bible is easier than you think it is. Why? Because oftentimes the answer is there for you. Look at verse number one. Look at the very end. Moses, you and the priest and the priest's sons and the elders, governors, magistrates, come up the mountain. Why? Look at the end of the verse. And worship ye. And worship ye. Why is God calling Moses up the mountain? Why does God want Moses to make this journey? Why make this trek? It certainly wasn't an easy journey to make. Why is he asking him to come up the mountain? Go back down the mountain. Come up the mountain. Go back down the mountain. Come up the mountain. Well, this first invitation up the mountain is that ye may worship and worship ye afar off. Look at verse number two. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Neither shall the people go up with them. So there's an immediate distinction. The people say at the bottom, Moses and these 70 elders, two sons, his brother, so 74 people in total, journey up the mountain to do what? To worship. And then once they get to that plain, Moses goes up by himself to come near unto the Lord. That's verse 2. Why does Moses go up alone? Why does Moses go just a little farther down the road than Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders? Why does he go farther? He goes a little farther to come near to the Lord alone. So, so you have these like, stages of, of, of things that's happening. So the point is, the purpose is coming up to worship the Lord. So that provides us with insight. We say, why does, why does it matter that we know the answer to that question? Because everything that happens on the mountain is for one reason. So everything that's happening on the mountain is for what understanding? It's for the understanding of how to worship the Lord. How do we worship the Lord? That's an important question. How do we worship the Lord? How does the Lord want us to worship Him? How should we worship Him? Okay, so let's, let's, let's get into it. Look at verse 3. Let's get into it. Verse 3. Moses came. He told all the people, and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said we will do. 
And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and builded an altar under a hill and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent out young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basin and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. Moses took the blood. You say, what, what blood did he take? The blood that he just told you about in verse number four, verse number five, verse number six. Moses takes this blood that he just referenced in verse five and six, and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. Okay, so, so now they actually journey up. So ev everything verse 3 to verse 8 is Moses' preparation of getting ready to go up the mountain and worship the Lord. He's preparing the people to worship the Lord. He's preparing the 70 elders to worship the Lord. He's preparing Nadab, Abihu, to worship the Lord. He's preparing Aaron to worship the Lord. He's preparing himself, and by way of himself, including his minister, certainly would be Joshua, in order to worship the Lord. Now look at verse number, look at verse number 9 again. Then went, up, then went up Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel. Look at verse 10. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God. And did eat. So they go up the mountain. They see God. They worship God. They fall prostrate on their face before God. They eat. We weren't told any other instruction. We weren't told any other information about what they have. I'm certain it probably included Chick-fil-A. Seems like if the Lord is going to a meal, that's going to be included. right? Pop-tarts are obviously going to be a part of this meal. What'd they eat? Who knows? Maybe, maybe it was, some, maybe it was a, a miracle as, as the Lord drops manna on the ground to feed the children of Israel for 40 years. Maybe it's something similar to that. Maybe there's an entire table spread. Where did they, where'd they get the food to eat? Where'd they get the food? They, what did they drink? Sweet tea? Water? Hamica? Coke? Lemonade? What'd they drink? We aren't told. We're told they go up the mountain. We're told they fall prostrate on their face. We're told they, they look down at the ground, they see as it were, paved sapphire, and then what? Then they eat. The Lord lays not his hand on them. They saw God and did eat. End of sentence. End of scene one. Cut scene one. Right? Got it? After that, they journey down the hill. They have interaction with the people. 
And then verse 12 happens. And the Lord said to Moses, come up to me into the mountain. So they went back down, now they're coming back up. Man, what does it mean then to worship the Lord? Hear it. What does it mean then to worship the Lord on his terms? From this understanding, from the understanding of Exodus chapter 24, what does it mean to worship the Lord on his terms? You see three things, okay? I'm going to give them to you at the outset, then we'll unpack them one by one. Watch this. Look at verse 7. The book. The book. The book of the covenant. Look at verse 8. The blood. Behold, the blood of the covenant. Look at verse 11. Number three. Look at number 11. They also saw God and did eat and drink. So to make it nicely alliterated for you, the bread of the covenant. The blood of the covenant. Or, or, or rather, number one, the book of the covenant. Number two, the blood of the covenant. Number three, the bread of the covenant. Let's take them in order. Number one, to worship the Lord means that we must be people of the book. To worship the Lord means that we must be people of the book. So, so no, notice this. Look at verse seven. Look at verse seven. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient. Okay, so imagine Moses opens up the book. He, he, he has this large book in front of him. He opens it up, un, undoes, unrolls the scroll, whatever it is. He opens up this book. He reads the words of the covenant of the book. He reads the statutes, the judgments. You're going to see that in a second. He reads the statutes, the judgments, the commandments. He reads all of them, not, not just Ten Commandments. He reads statutes, judgments, commandments. Everything that we've been talking about from, verse, from chapter 23 back to chapter 20. Okay, Exodus chapter 20, the very beginning, Ten Commandments. Then rolls out from there all this case law, right? All these rules and statutes and judgments and how to treat your neighbor and what to do with your roof and, and, and how to uh, tend to your garden and, and when to harvest the field in the garden and when to plant the garden and what to do with the poor that are among you and what to do with uh, uh, the immigrant that is among you and what to do with the women that are among you and how to treat children. All of this interaction. What to do when your ox breaks out of the cage and runs down the street. Remember all these? Remember all these? How many of you are with me? You remember it. All of that written into the book. The Lord says, Moses, get you, your brother, Nadab, Abihu, get the 70 elders, come up and worship me, prepare to worship me. How do we prepare to worship the Lord? We must first spend time in God's word. So he reads it open, and he, or, or he rolls it open, and he reads to the people all the words of the Lord. Okay, so here's your part. So we read the Bible. Look at verse 7. Your, your line is, all that the Lord hath said, we will do and be obedient. How many of you think you can pull that off? You can say that. How many of you think you can say that? That's like 12. That's not going to cut it. That's, that's basically a, a Methodist congregation right there, okay? We're going to do a little better than that. How many of you think you could say that little phrase at the end of verse 7? Let me see. Okay, let's all try it, right? Let's all try it. I'm going to read it. And he took the book of the covenant 
And he read in the audience of the people, and they said, ready, go. There was a lot of gusto there, right? There was not, there was a lot of pizzazz in what you did there. It'll count. It's Sunday night. I'll let it slide. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. That's what they said. And everything we just heard Moses read, we will do and be obedient. Three things about the people of the book. Number one, there's a written revelation. There's a written revelation. N notice that they hear everything twice. Do you notice that? Look, look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Moses came, told all the people all the words of the Lord, all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord hath said we will do. So Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar. So he comes to the people, he tells the people all the words of the Lord, the people respond, everything the Lord said we will do and be obedient. Moses says, good, and he writes it all down. He writes it all down. Then he goes to build the altar, he separates the blood, ba the, the blood basins, then he comes back to the people, reads all the words of the Lord again. They respond, verse 7, with your very mediocre response. All, the, we're, all, all that the Lord hath said, we will do. It cannot, look here, it cannot be emphasized enough that even at this early stage of Exodus, it cannot be emphasized enough that even at this early stage, God's people were already a people that were guided by a written revelation. It cannot be stated enough. That even at these early stages, the children of Israel were people who are not simply guided by tradition. They're, they're not simply guided by oral tradition. They are men and women. They are a nation that is guided by a written revelation. So, so they would not have to do this. They would not have to go, you know, Moses, I can't remember what you said I was supposed to do with my, with my, with my neighbor's oxen. Uh, Moses, you know, I can't remember. What is it that you said I was supposed to do with... There, there, was, no, there was no forgetting. There was no one going, well, I couldn't really hear you because I was all the way in the back and the person next to me kept talking. I, I couldn't hear you over the sound of my father snoring. There was no, none of that was allowed. Why? They have, this, they have this written revelation. It's not simply an oral tradition, although that's obviously included in the Old Testament. It's not simply a prophetic guidance. There are prophecies in the Old Testament, and the prophecies given are validated and do come true. But that is not all that the people of God were, and that is not all that the people of God had. God had given, even at these early stages, God had given His people an authoritative word. Something that guided their lives. It called the shots for their living. It regulated the way in which they would and would not interact. It was something that guided them. It, 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 it set rules, regulation, guidelines for them. It led them. 
There was a fixed, objective, multicultural, written standard that would outlast the people of God. I, I emphasize that point because we too have a written revelation from God. Amen, Pastor. Way to go. That's a good point. I, I emphasize that point because we too have a written revelation from God. That's a little bit better. Getting to the Lutheran stage right now. We're getting there. We have a written revelation given to us from God, which guides us. It leads us in how we are to worship. It teaches us that God not only wants to be the object of our worship, but also God sets the way in which we worship Him. Well, I feel like I can worship God like this. Well, let's open the Bible. Let's see from God's Word. We have an authoritative, objective standard that transcends cultural guidelines, boundaries, or traditions. There is a way in which God desires for us to approach Him. There is a way in which God desires for us to live. There is a way in which God desires for us to interact. There are things that God desires for us to do. There is a way in which we are to parent. There is a way in which we are to husband or wife. There is a way in which we are to treat our neighbor. There is a way in which we are to handle our money. God has given us a written revelation. We worship the Lord according to his written revelation. Look here. Not simply tradition. Now traditions are great. Traditions can be good. Traditions can help us understand and build into our lives routines that Hold up the way in which the Lord chooses for us to worship Him. But how many of you know sometimes those traditions don't do that? Just like sometimes traditions can do that, sometimes traditions don't do that. We don't want to be guilty of worshiping the Lord just because that's the way that everyone else has done it. We want to be sure that when we worship the Lord, we are worshiping the Lord according to His Word. Are you hearing me, church? We want to be sure that when we worship the Lord, we worship the Lord according to His Word. It's what the letter B in Baptist and our little... Um, what's, what's that called? Our little... Uh, say it again. Acrostic. That's what it stands for. And the Bible is our sole authority on all matters of faith and practice. Well, my grandma said... Great. But we don't, we don't want to do it because your grandma said. No offense to your grandmother. We just, want, we just want to know, is that what the Word of God says? We want to be people of the book. We want to be people of the Bible. Well, I had a really neat experience. It was lots of fun. I, I think it would attract a lot more people if we did it like this. Well, my, my cousin's church, what they do is, if I had a dollar for every time I heard something like this, we would remodel this auditorium. We want to be people of the book. 
We're going to be a church given over to God's word. We do things just because it could be more acceptable to people who don't go to church. We want to be people of the book. We want to just do things out of tradition. We just want to be people of the book. We want to be men and women of God's word. From the very beginning, Moses wrote it down. Notice this, there's not just a, re- a written revelation, but, there, but notice second, the book was read. It's not just that there is a revelation, it's that second, that this revelation is read to the people. In fact, we already made that point. It's read twice in the same setting. Imagine getting this sermon two times over. Some of you are scared right now. You're a little nervous, you're thinking, Pastor, don't do it. Don't do it. We don't want the sermon twice. He stood, he told them the sermon, they said, yes, we'll be obedient to the Lord. He wrote the words of the Lord, then he stood and he read the words again. And they said, two times in one day is too much. No, that's not what they said. What'd they say? All that the words, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. There's a written revelation, there's a book read, notice this, and the people responded. There's a response. When God's word is opened, and when God's word is taught, when God's word is read, hear me, God's people should respond. Wouldn't it be guilty of being hearers of the word only? Oh, we heard it. But we didn't let it affect us. We didn't let it change us. We didn't let it move us. We didn't didn't let it bring us closer in our relationship with God. We didn't let it produce praise or thanksgiving inside of our hearts for the Lord. We didn't let it generate anything in our life. We didn't let it change an attitude, a perception, a way we see someone in, in our neighborhood or at our office or how we treat our children. We didn't let it adjust, affect us. And they're people of the book. There's a written revelation. The book is read. The people respond. The book is read. The people respond. You you notice how here at the very outset of the worship of the Lord, man, nothing about how many people you need to have in the choir. Man, you notice here at the outset of the book, nothing about... And nothing about the way that Brother Chad leads the singing. You notice at the very outset, the very outset, what are the children of Israel? What is worship of the Lord? People of the book. People of the word. This is why, it's why our teaching and preaching habit here at First Baptist is the way that it is. Next chapter, next verse. Why? Because we want to make sure we're people of the book. That's why. Because when we walk through the Bible systematically like this, number one, it gives us a better contextual understanding. Number two, it causes us to be accountable for all the words of the Lord. Man, because as pastors, we want our, uh, we want our um, uh, day in which we are accountable to God, the day in which we answer to the Lord for how we pastored, we want to be able to say to the Lord in that day, we shunned not, like the Apostle Paul says, we shunned not to declare unto them the whole counsel of God. And it, it helps us accountability with God. Hey, hear me. This, this, this ought to be something that we want as members. It helps the pastors be accountable to the church. 
How many of you know there's some passages in the Bible that it's probably better if the pastor skips over because it's a little awkward? No one knows that. How many of you know that? Let me see. Let's try that again. There we go. And this, this, this keeps us accountable. This keeps our feet to the fire. That's what we want for our pastors. We want them teaching God's Word, not just skipping here, skipping there, only reading and teaching what they feel comfortable with, only reading and teaching what they want to harp on to us about, only reaching. No, we want them going just systematically through the text. I can't tell you how many times this has been such a blessing. I can't tell you how many, time, how many times somebody goes, well, you preach that sermon because I think you're preaching that at me. Well, just so you know, Sunday mornings were in Romans, have been since January. So Wednesday nights were in uh, Psalms, have been since, seems like forever. It, Sunday nights were in Exodus, we've been there for two and a half years. So if you want to know what the pastor is going to preach about you next week, just read ahead. We're going to be chapter... 24, verse 12 to verse 18, that's where we're going. So if there's something in there you don't like, sleep in that day. It's, it's one of the great, people meet me at the back door, oh, you, you only said that because you know this situation. And I go, I honestly have no idea that that situation was happening. I can just tell you, we're just going right through the Bible. Last week we were there, this week we're here. We want to be men, women, a church, a congregation of the book. Number two, we're people of the blood. Notice, this is about worship of the Lord. How do we worship the Lord? Man, through His Word. How do we worship the Lord? Through His blood. Look at verse 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So all you, all, you Bible, all you Bible scholars, you want a fun exercise, read about the covenants in the Old Testament when the covenants are given and then this token or this sign or this symbol of blood is present. It's a, it's a wonderful study to really enrich your understanding of, man, these, these two parties coming together in agreement and covenant, one party agreeing to do this, one party agreeing to do this, and they enter into covenant. And then in, in, as a way of, of, of showing the significance of the covenant, they, 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 they uh, either make a sacrifice, shed blood, right? You, you, some of you remember, you know, Tonto and the Lone Ranger, they, they really love each other. They, they go into a blood covenant, right? We're going to be blood brothers. So they, they both cut their hand and they're like, yes, now, now Kimasabi, I go with you, with you everywhere you go, right? Remember that? No, no one remember? You should look that up. It's, that's when TV was clean, okay? And the good guys always won. It, it, there's, this, there's this symbolism that's happening with the blood covenant. The symbolism that's taking place. So the contract between God and his people Centers on a, on a book, the contract between God and his people. Centers on the blood. It binds them together. This, this is not new for the Old Testament. If you're thinking everything Old Testament around, you're probably thinking of all the different references where this happened. You'll remember uh, the, the Canaanites and the Hittites. And when, whenever they would enter into agreement with someone, they would, take the, they would take an animal as a sacrifice. They would divide the animal in half. They would put... They would, 
spread, sprinkle the blood all the way to this half, and they would spread and sprinkle the blood all the way to that half. And then you would walk through, I just knocked that down. You would walk through the, the blood sprinkled as a way of, of, of passing through this sprinkled blood on the ground as a way of saying, if I violate the covenant that I've just entered, may this same thing be done to me. It's a way of saying, it's a, it's, it's a way of showing that. May this, may, 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 may I be ripped in two if I break the covenant that I just entered into. Think everything Genesis 15 and Abraham, the spreading of the blood, then the smoke and the fire comes through, then, then a, a, a sign of the covenant that God is entering into with Abraham. So, so, so notice a couple words, look at verse 4. Moses wrote the words of the Lord, rose up early in the morning, and then here, here we start to, into the, to the covenant of the blood. He builded an altar under the hill, 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent out young men, the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen unto the Lord. Jump down now, verse number 8. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it. Three words jump out of that or should jump out of that to you. Look at verse 4, the word altar. Look at verse 5, the word sacrificed. Look at verse 8. The word sprinkled, altar, sacrifice, sprinkle. That's what he's doing with the blood. The blood is being shed at the altar. It's a, it's a picture of the substitutionary death of this animal on our behalf. This is why Moses erects 12 pillars. He specifically says 12 pillars. Why, is, why are there 12 pillars at the altar? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. So it's symbolic of a substitutionary sacrifice for these 12 pillars, which symbolically represented who? The children of Israel. He's making this national-wide sacrifice on behalf of the children of Israel. There's an altar speaking of a substitute, speaking of the blood being shed. Look at, look at the, the next word, verse, um, verse number five, the word sacrifice. The word sacrifice speaks of propitiation. It's a great Romans word there for those of you who were with us in Romans 3 and Romans 4. Man, that God sent a propitiation. That God became, don't get scared of the word, the word simply means pro-us. How does God turn from wrath, right? We're, we're objects of wrath. He's working against us. How does God turn from working against us to being pro-us? Propitiation. How does he do that? He does that through a sacrifice. You can't bribe your way into a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. It must be accomplished through what? Through the shedding of a blood. Through the shedding of blood. Right? Through the shedding of blood, right? There is remission, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Think, think, everything in line with that. We sang about the blood a little while ago. Man, the altar speaks of substitution. The sacrifice speaks of propitiation. The sprinkling. It's an interesting thing that happens. He gets two basins. He sprinkles some of the blood on the altar. He leaves the other uh, basin full of blood until he's uh, finished with the, uh, with the, with the, with the sacrifice and, and all that would have accompanied that ceremony. And then he picks up the blood. And then notice verse number eight. And he sprinkled it on the people. What an interesting thing to add, an interesting thing to do. 
The sprinkling speaks of a consecration. So half of the blood is put into basins or, or, or into basins and they sprinkle it on the altar. They sprinkle the other half on the people. It's this physical mark. It's this physical mark. Blood, blood smells like something. How many of you know what I mean? There's a, there's, there's a very distinct smell to it. Blood stains. How hard it is to get blood out of your clothes. Remember years ago watching this like laundry commercial. So the, the, the advertisement, man, this tide is so powerful. It gets blood out of your clothes, right? I always watch commercials like that. I'm like, why, are there, why is there blood in your clothes? Like, I don't, I don't understand. How, how do we get to this point that we need something this powerful, right? It stains. It, all of the people literally have blood sprinkled onto them. It marks them. It sets them apart. There's a a distinct smell. There's a certain stain that accompanies it. It sets them apart. He's consecrating the people to the Lord. He's saying, these people consecrated, holy, set apart. That's the word holy. Holy, set apart, consecrated for the Lord. Holy in the sense that they're separate. Holy in the sense they only belong to the Lord. And we're people of the blood. We're people of the book. Last one, we're people of bread. Look at verse number 11. So they all go up into the mountain. When they get there, he lays not his hands on them. But he, they saw God in the very end and did eat and drink. Did eat and drink. I'm going to assume that you know eating, fellowshipping, Drinking, these are, these are staples, right? Even, even for our culture today, you go, to a, you go to a wedding, you celebrate someone's wedding, you're celebrating these two lives coming together, this beautiful ceremony that happens, and then everybody goes to, you know, said restaurant, said place, downstairs, if they do it here at the church, go downstairs, and then what do we do? We have bread. It, it symbolizes the, the fellowship of everything that's taken. We're all fellowshipping. We're all rejoicing together. We're all going down, interacting with one another, celebrating and commemorating the lives of these two people who just join together in holy matrimony. So the eating of the bread, there's three things here, the eating of the bread is a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of fellowship. Ceremonies normally end with a meal. You remember Isaac has a feast with the Philistines after he makes a covenant with Abimelech. You remember Jacob and Laban, they enter into their negotiations and after they get through negotiations, what do they do? They go and they have a meal, right? Probably even have a business practice like this for you. You and your business partners sit down. You strike up a deal. After the deal's done, what do you want to do? You want to go get something to eat. You want to celebrate it, right? The same thing happening here. It's a very common thing. There's a sign of fellowship. They're, they're sitting down together, having a meal together, sharing a meal together. We're all fellowshipping in this together. It's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of favor. We say, why, why is fellowship a sign of favor? Well, just walk backwards through the verse. Look at verse 11. And the nobles, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. Isn't that an interesting information in that verse? 
It's a sign of favor. You, you remember back a couple chapters ago, all the warnings. Don't go to the mountain. Don't, don't, even, don't even approach the mountain. Build a fence around the mountain so that you aren't tempted to get so close to the mountain that God would have to strike you dead. Don't let your animals, don't let your land, don't let your oxen, don't let them get to the mountain because if they get to the mountain, the Lord will strike them dead. It trembles, it shakes, there's smoke, there's fire. Remember all these images? The mountain and all this, this, this powerful imagery of God descending down onto the mountain. So imagine, the people have watched the mountain, they've seen it, they've, they've seen the power of God demonstrated on it, the rocks are shaking, the whole earth is moving, they've built a fence around the mountain, and Moses has said, listen, God explicitly said, do not go near that mountain, or else you will die. The children of Israel are like, okay, we'll, we'll stay way back. And now God says, Moses, come on up here, and get Aaron, and get Nadab, and get Abihu, and get the 70 elders, and you all come up here. You imagine moving the gate? Imagine the fear and trepidation as they're walking toward the mountain. <sighs> you sure? I don't think we should touch the mountain. I don't think we should go up to the mountain. God said if we even come near it, send a dog up first. Let's test it. We'll be right behind you, Joshua. We promise you go first. Man, now they approach the mountain. That, that's why it's so important. He laid not his hand upon the, the nobles. That's why it's so important to recognize that. How can, you, how can you come into the presence of a holy God and not die? Remember when Isaiah gets caught up? Isaiah sees the Lord, sees the seraphims around the Lord. Six wings, two they cover their face, two they cover their feet, and two they do fly. And they, they surround the Lord in tw 24 hours a day. Every day of the week they surround the Lord singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah sees the Lord, his train fills the temple. Remember everything Isaiah 6? This powerful image. And what does, Isaiah, what does Isaiah do? He doesn't walk in there and go, hey, what's up God? Been a while. He said, do that? You don't walk into the presence of a holy God, just casually strolling through. Seraphims can't look at God. Seraphims can't show their feet in God's presence. The seraphims must repeat over and over, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah is invited into this place. And what does Isaiah do when he gets there? Isaiah walks into this room, sees all of this imagery. And what does he do? Falls on his face. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't dare look at the Lord. Take the coal, put it on my lips because I am not worthy of being here. This is the great question of our, of our time. How can unholy people live in the presence of a holy God and not die? There's one way. A sacrifice. A sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice? Well, John the Baptist told you who the sacrifice was. Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It's not, it's not 
bulls and not oxen. It's not lamb. It's not goats. These are all temporary sacrifices. Read the entire book of Hebrews. These are all temporary sacrifices. You had to keep making these sacrifices over and over and over again. But there is one whose blood flowed with God's or whose veins flowed with God's blood. And his name was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he died on the cross, made covenant between us and God so that unholy people can come into the presence of a holy God. You can stand in the presence of God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. How can they go up the mountain without any, without any favor? They can't. So he makes a specific note to say, and the Lord laid not his hand upon the nobles of Israel. The sign of fellowship is a sign of favor. Last one. Let's get out of here. Last one. This is probably my favorite. Look at verse 10. Look at their focus. Okay, just listen to how it reads, okay? They saw the God of Israel. Okay, so what's an immediate question that you would ask of the 70 elders who came down the mountain? They had, they had lunch with him. They came down the mountain. We had lunch. We ate at the table. He, he didn't lay his hand on us. What was he like? What was God like? What did he look like? They saw God. What did he look like? Well, under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones. As it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Look, look, look. We saw God. What did he look like? I don't really know what he looked like, but I can describe the pavement that he was walking on. You see this? Why? Remember when Moses asked to see the Lord, Lord, I want to see you. What does the Lord say? No, no man can see me and not die. Moses, get behind a rock. I'm going to pass by. And once I pass by, you peek out. You see my back. And after you see my back, you're going to go down the mountain. Everybody's going to look at your face and go like, well, what, what happened to you up there? Because your face is shining. It's really strange. So here are these nobles. They come up the mountain. They're going to see the Lord. Watch. Watch. watch, watch. Here's the image. You've got to see the illustration to catch the image. We're going to see the Lord. We're going to see the Lord. The Lord shows up. What do they do? What do you look like? I don't know, but I know what he's walking on. Why, why is it that when they say, we saw God, they only describe the pavement on which God walks? Because that's how good and great and big and powerful and awesome and worthy our God is. You see, when you really see the Lord, you fall flat on your face. It's the only proper response. What's worship? How does God want to be worshiped? What's the proper response to worship? 
Let's make a couple applications. What's the proper response to worship? All that the word of the Lord says we will do. That's the proper response from God's people. So if we're genuinely worshiping the Lord, we are doing what God's word tells us to do. What's the proper response from worship? We're men and women of the blood. We recognize that there's no way in which to have the favor of God apart from the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can boldly enter into a throne room of grace. We can boldly enter where angels dare trod. Why? Because Christ made God Pro us. He gave propitiation for us. We were objects of his wrath, but because of faith in Christ, God turned and moved our way. What's the proper response of worship to God? People of the book, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the proper response of the people of God? To fall flat on their face when God shows up. To worship the Lord. To see God is to look at the pavement. I wonder, I wonder if for you, if for me, our worship of the Lord has been more, well, what do I get out of it? I, I wonder if our idea of worship is, well, well, that song really, really moved me. I, I wonder if our idea of worship is, uh, you know, all this stuff about next chapter, next verse. I mean, that's just not, I mean, it's not where I'm living. I, I wonder if our idea of worship is in line with Exodus chapter 24. Are you a man of the book? I'm not asking if you heard it. I'm asking if you're obeying it. Is your family a family understanding the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Grateful for it? Are we men and women who when the Lord shows up, we bow down? How long has it been since you bowed down in the presence of the Lord? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for the great day you gave us. Folks saved this morning, family joining, one following you in believer's baptism, your word being taught, your praises being sung, fellowship sweet. Father, if our hearts individually and corporately don't cry out all that the Lord says we will do and be obedient, well, then we've deceived ourselves and the truth isn't really in us. If, if, our, if our heart's attitude hasn't been to fall down, prostrate at your feet and worship you, well, then we have a conceited view of ourselves and a low view of you. We don't see you as great and mighty and awesome and big and powerful and spectacular. We want to have a high view of God. We want to have a good understanding of the price you paid so that we 
could have a relationship with you. You gave us your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that all who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And all of that should generate in us, should prompt from us, gen genuine worship. Worship.